You may be seated. And open your Bibles to Matthew 25. We will be in several Bible passages today, several different passages of Scripture. Right now, though, you're flipping to what, uh, what may be my favorite parable of our Lord. I go back and forth between uh, this parable and one of the kingdom parables in uh, Matthew 13, but we'll have to save that for another day. As you can see on the screen and in your notes, uh, we are starting a, a short series tonight uh, called Lifting by Lowering, Fulfilling Our Mission Through Service. And there's a number of Bible stories that I could use to introduce this series. Uh, an obvious choice would be Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Uh, there's probably no better example of humble service than that scene where the creator of the universe, the Lord of everything, grabs a towel to wipe dirt off of his followers' feet. Uh, but I've decided instead to open our series with a parable from Jesus. Uh, this parable in Matthew 25 begins in verse 14, and it's known as the parable of the talents. And I'm not going to be preaching to you from this text of scripture for the next 40 minutes. That's not what we're doing tonight. But I'm going to read it for you, uh, highlight some truths as we go. And I want you to be thinking about that as we talk about the subject of service this evening. So Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, I will be reading from the English Standard Version. For it will be like a man going on a journey. When Jesus says it here, he's referring to the kingdom of heaven. That's a big theme in the book of Matthew. That the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. So talents, for those who don't know, are uh, units of money, large units of money. Uh, those of you that have a study Bible could probably check in your notes to see that uh, they estimate that a talent is worth about 20 years of labor. So if uh, just for, for the sake of easy math, let's say that you make $50,000 in a year, well, 20 years of labor would come out to $1 million dollars in today's money. So it's a lot of money. It's not just a small amount. There's a lot of money being entrusted to these servants by the master. These are not the low man on the totem pole servants. These are managers. These are executives. And for the sake of interpreting this parable as we go, uh, who do you think the master represents? This is not a hard question. Someone want to shout it out? <laughs> Jesus, yes. The master represents Jesus. Sunday school answer. No surprise there, right? Well, so while Jesus was here, he gave the message of the gospel to his followers. He asked them to plant and water it. He's going to return and evaluate how they did. He gave them many things. He gave them lots of resources to manage. Let's go back to the parable. Verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made you five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what we want to hear one day, isn't it? Verse 22. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made you two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You know that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Great reward for those who spend their life well great punishment for those who waste the master's investment we are the property of our lord and savior jesus christ he gets to decide our priorities he gets to decide how we spend our time our money and our relationships the reason for opening this short series with that parable is to show you what is at stake in your service at this church. The master is gone right now, but one day he will return and demand a return on his investment in you. He's given you life. He expects you to spend it for him. He has entrusted the church with the message of the gospel. Those that do not embrace the gospel receive punishment when the master returns. Now, I don't want to skew or blur the line here, you could, be, you could be confused as to whether we're talking about salvation or reward. Uh, the parable, obviously, refer, is referring to salvation, whether or not the, uh, whether or not the ones who received uh, the gospel embrace it and love it and follow Jesus. We are going to be applying that in a slightly different scenario, in the scenario of other things that we have received from the Lord as believers, those being abilities and gifts that he wants you to use for his church. So while you're in the book of Matthew, let's skip ahead just a few chapters to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Another important verse. Let's get a clearer picture of what exactly Jesus expects of us while he's away. You know these verses that close the book of Matthew as the Great Commission. It is the command that Jesus gave right before he left the world and ascended to sit down at the right hand of the Father. It is our marching orders, and it ought to shape everything we do, both individually and corporately. Coincidentally, it's the central part of our church's mission statement. So the command, based on Jesus' authority, that's why in verse 18 of that chapter, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
So what he's about to say is rooted in his authority as Lord of all creation. Go, therefore, and make disciples. If you kept reading, you would see he wants them to do it by baptizing and by teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. But the main command there is to make disciples. As I said, this is the central part of our church's mission statement. Those of you that pay attention know that I love to talk about the mission statement. I bring it up all the time. And that's because one of my big desires as someone who oversees a number of ministries at this church, a lot of programs in this church, one of my big desires is that those programs would be working together to accomplish one thing. And this is the one thing, glorifying God by making disciples in a community of grace. Glorifying God is the goal. Making disciples is the method and community of grace or a local church is the setting in which the goal is accomplished, in which the method is carried out. As the pastor who oversees ministries from nursery to high school, I see a great need in our church for those ministries to start working together in a meaningful way. Each ministry needs to recognize their place in the mission, but also each ministry, well, part of that is each ministry knowing that they're just one piece of the disciple-making process. And I know who I'm talking to right now. I recognize that a huge portion of our children's ministry workers, not all of them, but a lot of them are not here right now. I recognize that our youth sponsors are not here right now because they are carrying out the mission in the Next Up and Awana programs. I'm talking to you because I believe we will need more help soon. Maybe not in Awana, maybe not in youth group specifically, but in general, our children's ministry is going to need more workers and more teachers. Maybe within the next 12 months, God would have you become an occasional Sunday school teacher. Maybe one month out of every three months or one month out of every four months, you would volunteer to not attend a Sunday school class yourself so that you could teach some young children what it looks like to love God and love his people. In the same way, though, that each ministry of this church needs to recognize its role in accomplishing the mission of the church, each individual in this church also needs to recognize their role. Ministries have a place in the mission. People have a place in the mission. When ministries don't have clearly defined purposes and goals, it creates frustration for the workers in that ministry. It feels pointless to serve. Am I really contributing anything? Is what I'm doing, does what I do matter? That's what we ask ourselves when we're working in a ministry that feels like it's spinning its wheels, right? But when individuals in the church don't have a clearly defined role in the discipleship process, when you look at yourself and you don't know where you fit in to what this church is doing, usually those people stop attending the church. It's not always the case. Some people, people react in different ways. But when you don't feel like you are needed, that has an effect on you. This is especially true of younger generations as they continue to study the millennial and Gen Z age groups one of the things that they've noticed is that they need to be needed. Those young people need to be needed. This is especially true of young men. So I just want to say up front here, the church 
this church really needs young men, younger people to step up and lead. There are so many young children in this church running around. Step into the fellowship hall after a morning service sometime. I've said this before, but that place is a madhouse. Some have used the word zoo, right? A lot of kids running around. Imagine the profit for the kingdom of God and the future of this church if we can purposefully and intentionally pour into those young boys and girls so that as they work their way through our children's ministries, all the way through high school, they graduate high school and they have a rich and deep relationship with God and they're ready to share with other people, ready to join the church. They're ready for the mission that Jesus gave us. They don't need to do soul searching for a few years. They don't need to find themselves. They know who they are and what they are for because they know the God who made them and he's their Lord. That's what we need to be producing as a church. Young disciples who are ready to take their place in a community of grace. So let me ask you, as adults, are you ready to produce those kinds of disciples? Are you that kind of a disciple? Do you know what you are for? You were made for a reason, intricately woven, the psalmist says. Do you know why God made you and put you here? You believe in the sovereignty of God. Everything he does has a purpose. He knows what he's doing. What was his purpose for making you with the specific abilities and specific desires and specific opportunities that you have and placing you in this context in a church that has a growing children's population <laughs> and needs help? Do you know what you are for? We certainly don't base our theology on management books. We're Bible people, but there's a concept in this book which is called Good to Great that sounds at least a little biblical to me. This business book, Good to Great, is well-known and well-respected study. It examined companies that made the leap from being good companies to being great companies, and if you want to figure out how they define good and how they define great, you're just going to have to read the book. That's not the point. But here's a quote that sounds at least a little bit like Paul talking about the church and his members. This is called the bus concept. The executives, this is from the book now, the executives who ignited the transformations from good to great did not first figure out where to drive the bus and then get people to take it there. No, they first got the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus and then figured out where to drive it. They said, in essence, look, I don't really know where we should take the bus, but I know this much. If we get the right people on the bus, the right people in the right seats, and the wrong people off the bus, then we'll figure out how to take it someplace great. Now, I did say a little biblical. Hopefully you're listening carefully. It's not all good, right? It's not, or I should say, it doesn't all apply to church life as Jesus and Paul intended church life to be. So let's ask the question, is the bus concept biblical? There's ways that it's not. The church, for example, knows where it's going. I just told you the mission that we have. We know what the mission is. We're not, we're not finding that out based on the people that we get. We know where we're going. That's why we have a mission statement. Another way that this is not biblical is that we don't get people on our bus by ourselves. We don't determine who gets on the bus. 
right? There is a sense in which we take the people that God brings us as the one who is sovereign, as the one who knows what we need. So like I said, we don't follow these management books wholesale. We follow the Bible, but the Bible does line up well with part of that bus idea. While we don't make decisions about who gets on the bus, we do guard the bus, we screen the bus with something called church membership. Church membership is the affirmation by the congregation of someone's testimony. When we as a congregation uh, accept new members, this is what we are saying. When we accept a new member, we are saying, based upon your profession of faith and the fruit of good works in your life, we believe you to be a Christian. We're not making them a Christian. We're affirming that we think they're a Christian. Now, some of you may cringe at the mention of good works. Uh, we should be evaluating the life and works of our members and our potential members because the Bible is clear that those who are in Christ will produce fruit. No fruit, no salvation. Which leads us to another part of the bus concept that lines up well with our biblical understanding of how a church should function. We do get the wrong people off of the bus, in a sense. We do that with a concept that Pastor Jim has been preaching on in the morning service called church discipline, right? Church discipline examines the fruit in a person's life and wonders if that person is truly saved. If someone persists in unrepentant sin after enough warnings and after enough time, the congregation has the ability and responsibility to make a judgment call that says, we don't think they are Christians. So we will excommunicate them from the membership. And I do appreciate how pastor has emphasized the fact that it is a loving thing to do. That is actually a big reason to join a church so that they can kick you out if you don't live like a Christian. That's a wake-up call, right? That is, a, no, that is a big argument for joining a church in membership so that you can be disciplined if you need to be. The church can get the wrong people off the bus. There's one other area where this bus concept lines up well with biblical teaching on what the church is like, and it is getting the right people on the right seat of the bus. What biblical concept is that? Well, I would argue that it's a lot like our second direction of the four-direction disciple, which is serve. This church teaches the four-direction disciple. That's why our men's ministry is called 4D Men. God does not intend for someone, when they join a church, for them to sit still and do nothing. Rather, they should progress through the stages of discipleship. Someone becomes a worshiper, and they learn to love God and love his commands. And as they start to love Jesus, and they learn that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, they want to do the same. So they become a servant. They move through the directions. As time goes on, the servant will learn that one of the best ways they can serve other people is by being a faithful witness and a faithful sharer of the gospel message that has been entrusted to us so that they would try to find ways to have gospel conversations with family and friends and strangers with the hope that God will use their simple, meager efforts in the, pro in the proclaiming of the gospel to bring people to repentance, to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. Lastly, the 4D disciple will recognize that every part of their life should be discipleship. 
Discipleship is the highest calling and the highest task of everyone who claims to know Christ. Worshiping, serving, and witnessing are all part of the disciple-making process. We worship by serving. We serve by sharing with others. All of that is wrapped up in this concept called discipleship, which is the priority of every true follower of Christ. doesn't mean it looks the same for everybody. Some Christians disciple by teaching Bible studies, and some disciple by hospitality. Some disciple by working in Awana on Sunday night, and some by working at the welcome desk, being friendly, answering questions about the church and about the gospel. But the whole point of this miniseries is to show you that if you want to be most effective in your ministry of discipleship, you must have an accurate view of yourself and get on the right seat of the bus. I know that's a big, big idea, or maybe I should say a long, big idea. We'll break it down, though. The right seat of the bus is, of course, referring to serving in the right area, using your gifts well. So I will ask you to now move in your Bibles to Romans 12 so that I can show you this truth from Scripture. It's one thing to be excited about the kids in our church and want to do something about it, But it's another thing to actually see what the Bible says, hear the words of God that convict us of sin and enable us to obey and to accomplish good works. We want to be Bible people, so we need to get our mission and our method from the Bible. So I'm turning to Romans 12, and I will read verses 1 through 8 for you. I believe it will be on the screen as well. Yes, it will. Romans 12, starting in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Once again, the big idea is that if you want to be most effective in your ministry of discipleship, you must have an accurate view of yourself and get on the right seat of the bus. Both the big idea and the passage that we're going to look at in Romans 12 carry two character traits. These are in your notes and These traits should define us as we think about service in the church. Some people, when they see them, will think it's impossible to have both of those traits at the same time. They're not really opposed to each other in that way, though, and we'll talk about that. The two traits are ambition for the mission, that's number one, and number two is humility in your ability. I did my best to make them memorable for you, so let's let's look at them one at a time. Ambition for the mission. Where do we see ambition in Romans 12, 1 through 8? Well, there are actually uh, three 
requirements that are built into these verses that all contribute to ambition. Uh, the first is the required view of life. He starts off by saying, I appeal to you, therefore. The requirements that Paul is laying out is based on a therefore. This sounds familiar, right? We've been talking about therefores today. What is the therefore talking about? Well, chapters 1 through 11 of Romans is where Paul has laid out arguably the richest and clearest theology of the gospel in the entire New Testament. What, does, uh, what Paul is about to require of us is not a baseless command. It's based on the fact that Christ has justified us by faith alone in Romans 3. And he's reconciled us to the Father so that there's peace where there used to be hostility. And that's in Romans 5. And also he's promised to keep us until the end. We read about that in Romans 8. That's just a really quick flyover of a few of the theological truths that Paul has just taught to the church at Rome before he says, I appeal to you, therefore. He's trying to get them to view life a certain way. Because of all that truth, live your life as a response, a worshipful response. That's the required view of life. This is the ambition that you're called to have for the mission of the church. Your life is not your own. You aren't starting your own thing. You're responding to what Christ has already done. You're continuing his work. There's obviously a sense in which his work is completed, right? The sacrifice is done. Jesus said, it is finished. When I say you're continuing his work, I mean you're continuing the work of the Great Commission, of building the church. Jesus has struck the decisive blow on his enemies with his death and resurrection, but the church is continuing that work by preaching the gospel to all creation, by making disciples. Sin is paid for, but we have meaningful work to do as a church. And you're not independent or autonomous if you know Christ. If you know Christ, you were made for this mission. Ambition for the mission is not bad. It is a worshipful response to what Christ has already done. And not only are you required to view your life as a response to that, there's also a required level of commitment. That's why he says present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not just willing to die for Jesus, that's hard enough. That's a different struggle, a different challenge. But willing to live for Jesus. P.J. O'Rourke once said, everyone, who wants, everyone wants to change the world. No one wants to help mom with the dishes. It's easy for us to get worked up about grand gestures that we would be willing to make for Jesus. If only we had the opportunity, right? We would die for Jesus if we had the chance. We would be like the martyrs, the great martyrs of church history. We like to think that way. Who's helping mom with the dishes, though? Who's living for Jesus? I'm going to give you, give the ladies in this room a crash course into the imaginations of men here for a second. Buckle up. Are you ready? In so doing, I'm going to ask you to imagine something unthinkable. And don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to be graphic as I describe this, but I just want you, for the sake of the illustration, to imagine someone attacking our church family right, during a service with deadly force. There's a point to this. Like I said, I won't be, I won't be graphic. Now, in reality, 
be very difficult for that to happen in our church. We have a great safety and security team who are trained and they have the means necessary to defend us and they, they carry out preventative measures every time we gather from locking doors to, uh, to patrolling and they do a great job. But imagine with me the unthinkable that someone made it into this room with a weapon. I call it the unthinkable, but that's not really true because I know something about men as a man and that is that almost every man in this room has imagined and fantasized how they would be the hero in a situation like that, right? Maybe not here at the church, but in some situation. I know you've ran through this in your head. Ladies, maybe this is a, a surprise to you. Maybe it's not, but this is something that men have thought about. They're hardwired to be protectors. Now, how each one of us individually would actually respond in the moment, that's a mystery that I hope we never discover. Uh, but we all have these illusions of grandeur. Yet who's helping mom with the dishes? I imagine that women also fantasize about giving up their lives in a particular way that's in step with their nature as women. I wouldn't know what that is, but I imagine that it's true. This verse in Romans is not asking us to be a dying sacrifice. We are called in other places of scripture to be willing to die. That's not what I'm saying. But here the emphasis is being a living sacrifice, using your life and breath and energy that God has entrusted to you for his service. To be totally committed, not just in death, but in life. But not only are we required to be totally committed, we're also required to spend our skills. That mostly comes from verse 6, where it says, let us use them. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then it would go on to list some specific gifts that we could have, that some people in this room do have. No matter what your particular gift is, it is expected that you use it and that you use it on behalf of others. I want to show you this from other passages of Scripture that talk about spiritual gifts and abilities that God gives. There are four places in the New Testament that talk about and list spiritual gifts. Romans 12 is one of them. There's also uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Now I'm going to show you on the screen that all four of those areas of scripture, all four of those passages that mention spiritual gifts have the same emphasis. Every time that the New Testament mentions these gifts and ability, unity and selflessness are emphasized. Using your gift for the purpose of building up the body of Christ is the point. Let's look at it. We've already looked at Romans 12, uh, verse 1 and verse 6. says, living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship, having gifts that differ down in verse 6. Let us use them. There's also, though, 1 Corinthians 14. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets. What's the point? So that the church may be built up. We're not going to get into the tongues and prophesying thing right now. You can ask me after if you're curious. But the point here is that so that the church may be built up. A few verses later in 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Here's Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. We aren't done yet. First Peter 4. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Different gifts, varied grace. Isn't it amazing how consistent the Bible is? The overwhelming emphasis is this. Insofar as you have been gifted, God expects you to use that to serve other people, to build up the body. Show your ambition for the mission by spending your skills to build up the body of Christ. So in Romans 12, we see that we should have this ambition for the mission. But number two tonight, you should also have humility in your ability. This primarily comes from verse 3 of Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We ought to have humility about what we are good at. C.S. Lewis famously said about humility that it is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Others have said that humility is simply an accurate view of yourself and your abilities. It's not necessarily bringing yourself down so that in hopes that others will lift you up. That's not humility. Humility is seeing yourself accurately, soberly, is the word that Romans 12 uses. This morning I introduced to you three circles that are supposed to help you discover where you should serve in the church, or at least what that ideal area of service would be. Your ability is circle number one. Circle number two is your desire. You could maybe even call that your delights. It's what you want to do or what you would enjoy doing. And circle number three is your opportunity or the open doors that you have. I'm going to run through just, uh, just a few examples to put some, put some meat on the bones here. Of It's one thing to see a graphic, but let's imagine what would it look like to have maybe two out of three of these circles in a ministry? And what should our response be when, when one of these is lacking in the area that we're serving? Let's, uh, let's, let's say the praise team. Well, well, first, we'll talk about lacking in ability. Let's say you have the opportunity and you have the desire, but you don't have the ability to do it well. What could that look like? Well, let's say that the praise team, the, the music team, decided that, uh, that we really need to add a bagpiper to the music team. I, I think that's a great idea, just saying. No one's going to write this down. Bagpiper? No? Okay. So there's an opportunity. They need a bagpiper. They need someone to play the bagpipes when we worship. And let's say that you, you would really enjoy that. So there's desire. That's two out of three. But let's say, though, that you can't play the bagpipes. You don't know how. You, you, didn't, you didn't learn like the rest of us in school. You don't know how to play the bagpipes. And if you don't know how, I would say that's not the ministry for you. This is a tough crowd tonight. We don't, uh, we don't need to go searching for the will of God in this situation, do we? We already know that you're not called to that ministry because you don't have the ability to fulfill it. Now, this is silly, but let's, let's think about it in terms of, of spiritual gifts that we're talking about. Sometimes people really want to be the person maybe up front doing teaching even. Does everyone have the ability to do that well? 
No, God made us all different. That's fine. Does it take humility to admit that about yourself? Yes. In fact, whatever you really want to do, if you're not good at it, it's going to take humility to admit that. It's going to take knowing yourself and trusting what other people say about you. But sometimes, let's take it to another, another extreme, sometimes we put too much stock in our supposed inability, when in reality, we would do just fine. Maybe, maybe we do this because the desire is lacking, so we say, oh, I'm unable to do that because I really don't want to. Like, a lot of you, for just as an example, could probably teach four- and five-year-olds. You'd have to learn some things. You'd have to, you'd have to prepare. It would be work. You'd be uncomfortable at first, but, but many of you are not lacking ability in that area. You might be lacking desire. So let's look at that as an example, lacking in desire. This one's a little bit different than the other two. If you are truly lacking in ability, or if there's no opportunity, it's game over, right? You can't do that if you don't have the ability or if there's no open door. But if you have ability and opportunity and you're lacking desire, it could be that God wants to mold your desire for that ministry, especially if there's a need in that area. So we'll stick with the example of teaching kids. Many, many people don't see themselves as good at this. You might even be surprised that some of the people who do it regularly don't even think of themselves as that good at it. It's a hard, it's a hard area to, to evaluate yourself. I'm not saying that 50% of you can do this, but maybe maybe 15 or 20% of you could do this if you put in the work and the prayer. And that being said, that being said, though, a, a complete lack of desire, it still means something. God can mold your desire if it's not quite there. Quite there. Desire is still important. Even in, uh, in the passages that talk about being a pastor, desire is an important thing. 1 Timothy 3 says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or pastor, he desires a noble task. So that's one of the requirements for pastors. But also in 1 Peter 5, it says, uh, Peter talking to elders, to pastors, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. So I'm not completely trying to write off the importance of having a desire. I am just simply nudging you that if you have the other two and your desire is a little low and there's a great need where someone is suggesting like maybe you could do this, that might be revel- that might be coming from God or from the Holy Spirit. That might be an indication that you should try to mold your desire. So desire's important but not ultimate. Lastly, let's look at a lack of opportunity and what that means, lacking an opportunity. What if you have the ability to be a great teacher of children and you have the desire to do so, but there's no openings or maybe there's no children in a different scenario, right? Then that ministry is not for you. It's a little bit more difficult, right? What if, uh, what if you have the ability and the desire? This one's even harder. What if you have the ability and desire to teach kids but someone with authority says that's not a good fit. I would also say that that's a closed door. If opportunity doesn't exist, that too can be taken as the Lord's will. We don't have to go searching for it. He has revealed his will. So to recap, your ideal place of service will be a ministry that allows you to use your abilities, something that you want to do, and a ministry that wants you there. There's a need. There's an open door. And we'll close tonight by uh, listing four humble responses. I know we're heavy in the examples right now. I think it'll be helpful, though, 
let's say you get, uh, you get asked to serve in an area. What does a humble response look like? It's different based on the scenario, but just as uh, example number one here. Four humble responses. Here's one humble response. I will do that because God has gifted me in that area. Some would think, oh, that's not humble. They're acknowledging their own gifts. That's not the definition of humility that we talked about, right? Humility is seeing yourself accurately, and it's okay to acknowledge your strengths and use them to serve God. Here's another humble response. I won't do that because I'm bad at it. Okay. Also knowing yourself. It's humble for the same reason. See how it's the opposite action, but it's still humble because it's true. A third humble response. I would do that, but I won't because I want to submit to my authority. This is humble because the one the one saying this is submitting their desires to their authority. Maybe they see themselves as, oh, that would be a good fit for me, but some other people say no. Or maybe the congregation even says no. This is a humble response. I would do that, but I won't because of my authority. And lastly, I wouldn't do that, but I will because I want to submit to my authority. Just the flip side. Something that ordinarily I wouldn't see myself taking on that, that, uh, that uh, responsibility, but they are willing to do it because the authority has asked them to. So by studying Romans 12, we learn that we should have ambition for the mission, but also humility in our ability. And if you want to maximize your service and maximize your discipleship, one of the best things you can do is get an accurate view of yourself and your abilities and then submit those to your church family so that you can find the right seat on the bus. Because it's really the church that is going to benefit from your service and from your humility. In two weeks, we're going to continue this series by talking about the ministry philosophies of the children's ministry and the teens ministry, the teen ministry in this church. And maybe God would have you help with those or with another ministry in the future in some way. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word and thank you for these truths from Romans 12. And we're thankful for this church family and how involved they are in serving your church. I pray that you would give us a great desire to be uh, fruitful for you. I pray that you would make us love the disciple-making mission that you have given us. Give us great ambition and also make us humble. Help us to, to truly see ourselves and, and be willing to serve wherever it's most helpful because we're serving you and not ourselves. We serve others while fearing you. And even as First Thessalonians says, we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Pray that that would be true in, uh, in the hearts and minds of everyone who is listening to this. Give us a great desire to serve with humility, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for coming out. You are dismissed. <laughs>